You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, One Step Off the Grid and the EV Focus the Driven. And joining me as usual, but out there in the country, as you will soon hear from his voice, is uh, ITK Principal David Leach. David, um, I trust you are well and um, how's life out there in the country? Well, I'm at West Wyalong, about one kilometre from the West Wyalong 100 megawatt solar farm. And uh, it's a pleasure. We've got a great guest today to talk about solar, wind and pumped hydro. And battery storage. And batteries. And batteries, yes, absolutely. Look, it's um, our great pleasure to welcome uh, Craig Francis, the CEO of uh, GenX Power, to the podcast. Um, Craig, um, welcome to the podcast and uh, congratulations on your appointment a few months ago. Yeah, thanks very much, um, Giles and David. Great to be here, and um, yeah, appreciate that. Sort of two months into the job, it's been a, a pretty, um, pretty interesting start to, to life as CEO of GenX. But um, but great to announce. You know, we, we had a fire incident in our battery a, a month or so ago, but great to announce today that we've now got it into full operation. So um, so very pleasing. Yeah, well, look, it has been a very interesting start. Uh, of course, look, GenX is doing is, is look, it's a really interesting company. It's it's uh, the only listed renewable energy developer um, of scale that I can think of in Australia. Um, you've got um, the country's first pumped hydro project in 40 years that we will come to very soon. You've got a lot of other very exciting projects, most notably Bulleye Creek, initially um, supplying Andrew Forrest's um, hydrogen plants and possibly expanding into the country's biggest solar farm, a, a wind addition to the Kidston project. But look, let's start, let's start off with Boulderkin Battery. It's your first big battery. Um, the last thing you probably wanted to see when um, you took on the job was, um, it must have only been a few weeks into your, into your, um, into your role that um, a Megapack module caught fire. Yeah, indeed, it was an unfortunate event. Um, you know, we, we were sort of in the in the final stages of commissioning, uh, just completing a, a discharge cycle, having um, you know been operating the battery in between the, in the testing, and uh, unfortunately, yeah, one of the, the mega pack units. There's forty of the units at the site. One of them caught fire at, at toward the end of that um, discharge cycle. I guess. You know, pleasingly, um, the mega pack behaved as it was supposed to. It's designed to contain the fire. You don't. You don't. Um, water these things with, with them with water to put the fire out. You let them burn out, and, and they're designed to, to contain the, the blaze and, and not to propagate to um, to adjacent units. So that that was that that was exactly what happened, which was pleasing, and, and it was ultimately deemed to be a minor fire incident. We've since been working um, on you know understanding what the root cause of of the fire was with with Tesla, and, and they've been really really good in, in cooperating with us. Uh, and ultimately, we, we announced uh, last week that the, the cause was was isolated to the inverter within the Megapack unit and where that connects to the AC bus bar. So there's been a bit of, since that time, we've um, we've done a bit of visual, visual inspection of, of the inverters. We've replaced two of them um, within the, the fleet and, and everything's been given the green light to uh, resume operations. So final testing being completed this week. And full operations um, today, actually, uh, with 38 of the 40 units, there was a little bit of thermal damage to the adjacent unit. And so out of caution, we've taken that out of service. And pleasingly, Tesla 
had to replacement units, um, you know, on a boat, you know, within 24 hours of, of the event. So um, it, it's been great to see that, see their response as well. It's interesting, isn't it? Just sort of, I mean, the the visual aspects of the fire are quite dramatic. Um, and how is it then to sort of manage public expectations? Because you see a battery unit, you see a fire, you see warnings for local people to shut their windows, you see flames and things like that. You describe it as a minor fire, though. So um, is that sort of, does that sort of pose interesting sort of problems there to sort of manage? I mean, I guess the fact that it was minor is sort of exemplified by the fact that you, six weeks later, you're now running the battery, able to run the battery at full capacity, minus the two megapacks. <laughs> yeah, look, you know, these things, they do get media attention, right? Um, and, and we were at pains to, to, you know, give the facts, which was that it was one of 40, it didn't propagate. Um, Queensland Fire and Emergency Services were on site very quickly and they, they um, demobilised from site, you know, in, on the afternoon following the, the event. There was a bit of smoke which was reported in the media, but we have people on the ground in the community as well, and, and they've um, certainly expressed to me that that there aren't any real concerns among the community about it. Um, so yeah, it, it's sort of business as usual now. Um, we, we did actually energize, re-energize the the site within you know forty eight hours of the event to to put a bit more charge into the megapack units while we completed the root cause analysis. So um, yeah, you know, I, th I think uh, a little bit overblown, but but pleasingly just to reach this milestone and, and draw a line under it. Um, yeah, yeah, I've got one more question. I'm going to let David in for a chance. Um, you're going to be operating this battery, uh, basically, what, well, Tesla's actually operating it, isn't it? They've got their ultimate system here. You've basically handed over operational control to them. And rather than sort of contracting then, like sort of, you know, other, other battery developers write contracts with, say, AGL, Energy Australia or Shell, basically, here's the battery, you operate it, you give us a fee for doing so. You've got a slightly different arrangement, as I understand it, with Tesla. I mean, maybe it's partial fee, but it's also partial profit sharing can you just tell us a bit, little bit how that works absolutely and look, the genesis of this is we, we've done this this pump storage hydro project which is, is widely known in the, in the sector but then in, in getting that project into financial you know, to financial closing into construction we, we really had to, to give away you know a large long-term full dispatch rights contract to energy australia so all the upside from from the energy arbitrage from fcas markets from selling cap contracts all sits with energy australia for that project and I guess when looking at the next next stage of growth for our portfolio, we were keen to capture some of that those price dynamics which we were you know fundamental believers in um, over the medium term for ourselves. So we've deliberately set about doing that with this battery and and doing so in a way that that doesn't you know distort the portfolio. It's a, it's a small chunk of our portfolio that gives us a really good upside exposure. The structure we have is is Tesla using AutoBidder, which they've been using since 2017 at Hornsdale and on a number of other projects in in the NEM and maximizing their revenue for the project using auto bidder, so bidding into every all the FCAS markets and, and the energy arbitrage markets every five minutes. Um, they also provide us with a, an underwrite of, of revenue, um, which is sufficient to support a, a decent level of project financing for the project. So we've got downside protection, um, but but exposure to the upside and in, in compensation for Tesla's operation and, and their revenue underwrite, they get a slice of that upside. So. Really, we see it as a perfect alignment of incentives. Tesla certainly um, have been using AutoBidder for a long time here and probably making a lot of money for their clients. And I think they see it as a way to to monetize uh, you know, the software platform that they've developed as well. So it's a win-win for both of us and um, pretty excited to get going on it today. Craig, uh, perhaps that leads into uh, GenX's overall uh, business model and balance sheet. You're a small company. 
really in share market terms, like at 250 million or even a little bit less. The share price has been flat for five years while you've been uh, building lots of stuff. You've got uh, 750 million of, of debt, which is, is, is a high level of gearing, even if it's all project and you know uh, very comfortable sort of debt, if I can describe debt that way. I just wondered if you could talk about, uh, I suppose, the balance sheet and the financing for your growth operations that you, you envisage, whatever they may be. We'll get to the growth bits and pieces, which I'm very interested in. But I just wanted to talk about how you see your sort of business model and the balance sheet in that context. Yeah, sure, David. Well, I guess at, at, at you know full operation, we, we have a portfolio of 400 megawatts, which comprises two operating solar farms, um, another operating battery as of today, so 150 megawatts there, and, and then 250 megawatts being the Kids and Pump Storage Hydro project, which is in construction and, and um, due to be energised at the end of next year. That's that's a portfolio of about $1.1 billion, and, and fully drawn, our, our debt facilities are about $840 million. So you're right that there is a fair bit of debt in the structure. I guess the way we look at that, as you say, it's it's all non-recourse project finance, and that's that's obviously the way that this sector has been um, developed to date. It's it's a very um, common structure for for funding this sort of infrastructure, being high capital intensity, but then very predictable long-term cash flows um, on the back of it. Um, but I guess the way we we view that the balance sheet is that you know the bulk of that debt is a $610 million concessional loan facility from the Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility, a concessional government, federal government lender. It's a 15-year fixed-term facility at a, at a very low interest rate. And what, what that interest rate does is drag our total portfolio interest rates to uh, to 3.02%, and that's fully hedged out to, to sort of 2030. So um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, yes, there is a high level of debt in the, in the company, but the bulk of that is a government concessional lender who is um, who's very supportive of everything we're doing, and and look, you know, we're hoping to do more business with them when it comes to the um, the expansion of the portfolio. Yeah, that that's what that's what I'm. I guess it's it's really like the Boulderkin battery, as you say. I mean, the point is really when I think about it, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. You're a very small company trying to play uh, in stuff that needs a fair bit of capital, and in order to do to play there, you've basically had to give away a lot of upside and become a very pure infrastructure uh, player, as you mentioned, with the uh, with the pumped hydro side of things. And then you'd like to capture, to actually operate in the market more, in market-facing business with Boldercom. But going forward, do you see yourself as, as doing infrastructure projects or, or being more market exposed or balanced? Uh, I guess the one will require more equity raises. Yeah, we... we... Currently, you know, 400 megawatts of what we call our committed portfolio is is 83% contracted um, based on sort of outlook for the portfolio over the next 30 years. So it is highly contracted, but there is merchant exposure in there. We've got a fully merchant solar farm in New South Wales and, and obviously this exposure that we were just talking about with the battery. I guess the way we look forward, we're not looking to change that dramatically. We're not going to go and build a fully, you know, 400 megawatt fully merchant battery to, to really tip the scales. We will take strategic merchant exposure um, as we continue to build out the, the projects uh, pipeline when we think there is really real value in doing so, when we think that contracting it is leaving too much um, on the table and, and or giving too much away, and um, and where we see upside that's not quite reflected in a fixed-term contract. So we will be operating still a highly contracted model, but we will continue to take merchant exposure as and when um, we think it's appropriate. 
And I'll hand back to Giles, but uh, we've got Kidston Stage 3 wind uh, on the horizon where I think you're aiming for uh, uh, notice to proceed uh, next year in calendar 2024. Um, can that take advantage of the grid connection? And I mean, uh, uh, that's not, I can't read. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and the Bulleye project, I guess, uh, both of them and... Uh, um, where they're up to. Yeah, sure, Dave. That's a very um, long question and probably going to warrant a long answer. Um, Kidston Wind. <laughs> well, we can, we can take it in bite-sized chunks, actually. Let's, let, let's do Kidston Wind first because I've got a few questions about Blake yeah. as well. You, you might recall when we financed the Hydro Project, you know, this was a, this is an old gold mine in outback Queensland and it had everything that you'd, you know, you'd want for a pump storage hydro project. It had an existing reservoir. It had a, you know, construction accommodation, fly-and-fly access, more than substantial, more than enough uh, water supply from a, a dam that was built for the mine, um, and you know a really efficient scheme with the, the two reservoirs really close together, so minimal tunneling uh, to connect the two. What it lacked, however, was um, sufficient transmission capacity to export the power to the to the NEM, and and that was the real problem that we had to solve to get the project um, committed and and into construction. Ultimately, we we came to an arrangement where we we've we're building a brand new transmission line or powerlink queensland is building a brand new transmission line 185 kilometers from kidston due east to uh to a place called gaibal munjan or mount fox uh, which is between on, on the net, main network backbone between cairns and townsville and and to do that we the, the, the project is, is basically acting as a cornerstone um customer for that line it uses about half the capacity it's contributing 111 million dollars of the total capex and and to, to fund the balance, we've had Queensland government step in with $147 million from their Powering North Queensland plan to, to commit the balance. So essentially, it's, it's like a, a mini mini res before reses were, were spoken about and Kits and Hydro being the foundation customer, um, but they're being spare capacity for future projects. And I guess when we talk about the wind project, that is deliberately sized 258 megawatts to take that full spare capacity and, and fill that line and, and deliver a clean energy hub of, of 558 megawatts um, and the, the world's first you know, co-location of uh, wind, solar and pump storage hydro all, all at one site and, and to top it off at an abandoned gold mine. So it's a pretty good story. Um, it's been a long hard road to get here, but it's, it's finally um, you know, really coming to fruition. And just finishing on that, in terms of the uh, cost of developing wind out there and indeed the, the general cost environment, can you talk a little bit about what your expectations of the capital cost are with the advantage of not having to do so much transmission and how you're finding, I guess, uh, in terms of connection studies uh, with AEMO and all that, the GPS, uh, you know, compared to where your solar developments, just how you're finding the whole cost and development experience? Look, it, there's, it's no secret that there is upward cost pressures in our, in our sector. Um, just with the general construction industry, obviously raw materials costs are going up. Pleasingly, panel prices are going down, but we're probably not experiencing that on the wind side of things. We haven't yet given guidance on the capex for kids to win, so I'd be a bit hesitant to go there as yet. But we, we are seeing an economic project for sure. And really what's what's offsetting the increased costs is the is the revenue side. We really, you know, in Queensland, where a lot of the heavy lifting for the transmission uh, transition has to occur in wind, really seeing good demand on the offtake side we've also got a really attractive profile which 
which is very um, complementary to solar. It, it, it's, it blows stronger in the mornings and the evenings and, and less so in the day, which means the pricing that we're, we're getting, you know, we've, we've announced an offtake with Energy Australia, our first piece of the offtake puzzle um, at, at, you know, what we consider pretty attractive pricing. And that does um, does sort of help maintain pretty healthy returns for, for the project owners. From a GPS perspective, it's it's next to a big synchronous condenser at the Kitson Hydro project. So, um, yeah, we're, we're expecting that to... to really benefit the project um, in, in terms of getting through that, that piece. And so it's interesting that you've gone with wind now. Um, my original, my understanding was that originally you were sort of looking at, you know, a potential expansion of the existing solar project there. Um, you went with wind, which kind of makes sense because there's so much solar in the Queensland state. But I think you indicated in your investor presentation a week or so ago that basically solar is now not going to happen there. So, you know, you're really... Um, sort of wind has won the day in that particular project. Can you just tell us a bit more about why that is? I mean, I, I guess it's because <laughs> there's an awful lot of solar in the middle of the day so far in, in, in Queensland and, and not so much wind. Look, that, that's part of it, yeah. There, there is only a certain amount of transmission capacity that's being supplied by this line. And and the idea is with the wind, you know, we've we've been monitoring the wind resource up there for some time. We've, we've moved equipment around various um, plateaus up there to find the best location and we think we've landed on it. We've got an economic resource, and with with the landing of the first offtake with EA and and in discussions for a second, um, it is looking that way that that the wind will will proceed in advance of the solar and 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 therefore use the spare capacity. And I guess it's really a value proposition. You know, the pricing you you're getting for for offtake for solar in, in that part of Queensland where you've got you know got a decent MLF um, for solar, um, you know, is Sorry, not so attractive MLF for solar up there. Um, you know, it, it, the value proposition for wind just makes a lot more sense now when, when you see that, that profile. Let's talk more about the pumped hydro um, project because this is, um, look, we've heard a lot about Snowy 2.0, but that's not going to be complete till 2029. So yours will be the first pumped hydro project to be built and completed in Australia in four decades, which when you think about it's quite remarkable. Um, my understanding is you've just recently... Um, uh, completed the main tunnelling. Um, now, there has been some sort of water ingress, I think, in the last six to 12 months. So I think that led to a little bit of a cost overrun, potentially 10 to $15 million on what's, I think, it's a $600 million project. Can you, you know, we hear, we, we hear around the world about civil construction costs sort of blooming, you know, booming out. And, you know, I mean, Snowy Hydro is like two, three, four, five times more over budget, depending on how you want to look at it. But um, you've seen to have kept everything under control in, uh, at Genex. Um, I suppose um, inviting you to give yourself a pat on the back. How have you done this? Yeah, obviously, yeah, it's, we're the first private sector participant to, to be doing this. Uh, I know there's lots more in the pipeline, but certainly, you know, Snowy is a very different different beast being a government-owned um, company. Um, you know, as a private sector participant, we've got project finance on the project. It was very important for us that we had a fixed price lump sum contract and, and with high-quality contractors, so the John Holland McConnell our joint venture is building the project for us under under that contract. Obviously, you know, not everything's um, you know fully wrapped up in that contract, and and you know you, you spoke about the water event that we had um, a bit over twelve months ago, actually uh, September last year, where we had some water ingress into the underground workings, and that was that was unfortunately one of the risks that sat on our side of the the ledger. Um, but but really pleasingly, we we dealt with that um, at the time. We you know we determined that it wasn't wasn't appropriate to go forward on the on the alignment that we were tunneling on and and rerouted the tunnel away from that zone we got a drill rig underground to to de-risk that um you know that strategy and pleasingly 
just last week we announced that that tunnel where we hit the water is now completed. It's at the powerhouse, and the powerhouse excavation is 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 moving ahead, um, you know, pretty aggressively without without issue. So where we're at with that now is that all of the underground works um, are, are now on track to be completed by Christmas. The, the exception to that is where the tower race tunnels push out into the lower reservoir, and, and the reason for that is that. We only complete those works once the the water is is down in the lower reservoir. We've moved it to the upper reservoir, so so that's um that's due to happen in the first half next year. But I guess the way we you know fixed price contracts obviously help um help to manage costs and um but but I guess you know the other piece is we, we sit here today. It's 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 obviously a complex project. It's civil um, tunneling. It's dam building. There's lots of interfaces with the network connection. But it's really pleasing here to be, you know, to be where we are today. You know, we, the dam is nearly finished. It will be finished by Christmas. Powerlink is pushing on with the transmission line and, and really pleasing to see the progress there. I think there's been a few announcements in the last week or so on the towers going up and the foundations being poured and, and everything else. But that's that's all tracking really well. Completion of the underground uh, by Christmas is another major milestone. And then really next year is all about over to the contractor to fit out the powerhouse and uh and complete the works and that's that's really their their bread and butter and and we'll do everything we can to support them in that um but but uh you know we're confident that they're gonna get on with that and and complete it um pretty efficiently so yeah it's a good place to be it's been a been a bit of a bumpy ride certainly with that issue last year but um but as you say you know largely largely under control that the 10 or 15 million dollar cost blowout i think equated to to three percent on the total project cost of 775 million so um yeah, it, it's it's quite pleasing to be where we are today. Uh, yeah, and, and and look, just before we move on to um, um, Bulleye Creek, and I might get David to sort of um, kick off a question on that. Just one final one. Um, just sort of the fact that it is in this old gold mine, this sort of open pit gold mine. I mean, how useful is that, or how suitable? I mean, well, obviously this is very suitable. I mean, you've got basically the the powerhouses going in at the bottom of near the bottom of the mine in a new tunnel um, adjacent to the bottom of the pit, I think. Um, it, it seems to be the perfect place to have such a thing. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, a lot of the pumped hydro sites that you see, you know, being being developed. You know, if you think about a pumped hydro, it's two reservoirs and and an interconnection, you know, either underground or, or above ground and, and into a powerhouse. So, um, you know, to have some of those bits of infrastructure in place already is a big advantage. And with Kidston, we had a lower reservoir already done, no work required. Uh, we had sort of half of an upper reservoir. Um, there's a, the first pit they mined out, which is quite broad and shallow. The concept of the scheme is to is to use the surrounding waste rock dumps to build the dam on top of that. And and so you know, there was a lot of existing uh, material there. Um, so a lot of the, the waste rock dumps were just re-sculpted rather than uh, new build sort of dam levy. So um, benefit from it, a lot of existing infrastructure, but also being an old mine, there was just reams of geotechnical information you know this this place had been peppered with drill holes for for 30 40 years so the geology was really well understood it's a really high quality rock structure that we're in um you know being an old gold mine it's hard rock mining so the, the rock is um is, is really really um competent so that that also helps when you're doing underground um underground tunneling so a few advantages which which lent itself to um you know, to building pumped hydro here and uh look i guess you know we, we um, maybe just just to just to finish on that, we, we recognise that we are recipients of public money to to fund this project with the concessional government loan, and there's also an arena grant, and 
and really we think we have a, a duty to to share all our learnings with the industry because we think that there's there's lots that we've learned that that can be applied to, to future development of pumped hydro and certainly you know there's a lot of storage capacity needed to get this transition done so so we're very um pleased to be able to to share those and we do it by the arena knowledge sharing um process and put out reports on that regularly so um yeah hopefully hopefully uh, the lessons we've learned can make it a lot, lot easier for other projects that um you know they're all quite different but but similar concepts they are all quite different craig and uh you know you you are i i mean i didn't want to be too critical when i said the share price has been flat i mean i think you've done incredibly well for a company with next to nothing except a gold mine uh, a disused gold mine to to have built all the stuff that you've built it's terrific but it's a challenge i reckon but uh, you are a company that uh, uh, has or is developing, has nearly developed a pumped hydro plant, and you've also subsequently developed a battery. And uh, you're looking at battery storage up at Bulleye Creek, and I'm reading about battery duration getting longer all the time, uh, which is what was predicted by NREL and everyone. Uh, I'm just, you know, the use cases for pumped hydro and batteries and the relative. How's is your thinking changed at all over the over the last couple of years? Look, I think the, the the business case is very different. I think obviously batteries have a lot more short term revenue opportunity than a hydro, given that the the markets are able to participate in and and obviously they're lower capital cost and, and easier to um to install. I guess pumped hydro, you know, we're talking a, a twenty twenty five year battery versus a, an eighty year piece of civil infrastructure that once it's built it's there for, for for generations really and so the business case is very very different you know hydro it is it is there to provide that that long duration um, and long-term deep storage um, and i think it does have a role to play in the energy transition um, obviously batteries are the lower hanging fruit because you know they, they are much simpler to construct and to deliver and um, certainly you know we, we're seeing the opportunity now for for um you know, batteries to, to make good returns um, in, in the short term. So, look, I think that there's a role for both. Um, certainly, we're, we're not, um, you know, the, the experts to predict what the energy mix will look like in, in 30 years. We're here to play our part and, and to deliver um, renewable energy generation and storage capacity, whether that's, um, that's pumped hydro or batteries. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, as someone that used to pick cherries at Christmas time uh, for a few days, I quickly learned that the low-hanging fruit are indeed the ones to choose. <laughs> you seem like you're making a lot of money and then you have to climb up the top of the tree. But anyway, let's not go there. Um, uh, if we come onto the Bulleye Creek thing, I think the first thing that surprises me is that um, um, uh, for, for, Forrest, uh, is even interested in it. I mean, CWP has got a ton of its own projects. What's the attraction of Bulleye Creek uh, fundamentally? Yeah, Bulleye Bully Creek's a really interesting site. It's been around for quite some time um, in, in a few sort of guises. I think it's originally being developed with First Solar and then Sun Edison was involved. And then it's been been put on ice for a little while when, um, when you know, demand for solar uh, in Queensland sort of dried up um, when we're seeing, you know, the schemes sort of tail off and and very um you know volatile intraday pricing we, we bought the site you know it's 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 located in southern queensland in the western downs it's five kilometers south of the bully creek substation which is where q and i queensland new south wales interconnector connects into the queensland side of the border so we think a really strategic location and it's fully permitted uh, with fifteen thousand acres and and you know we think up to two gigawatts of grid capacity for solar and or battery storage projects. 
we initially bought it to to do another big battery on the back of Bouldercombe and looking to do you know sort of 400 megawatts there um you know we think you know quite quite a strategic location for a battery on the interconnector and, and obviously the mlfs are really good as well down in the south however um we were you know pleasantly surprised to see you know demand um sort of renewed demand for for solar you know large scale bulk solar um electricity in queensland uh, soon after we bought it so we've been you know progressing both streams but but what we've sort of found with the announcement with the deal with um with Fortescue is that is that we're you know there is this demand for solar now and um and it's really compelling and so we're we're now moving ahead with solar as a first stage and I guess what we've announced is is three thirty seven point five megawatts of offtake with Fortescue for twenty five years to to be used for their Gibson Island green hydrogen and ammonia project in the Port of Brisbane. And, and that will underpin at least a 450 megawatt solar farm. But the, the real message here is that we are in discussions with others for a similar size offtake. And, and on landing that, that'll enable us to commit to a, a 775 megawatt solar farm as the first stage, which will be the largest grid connected solar farm in Australia. So it's a pretty big project, pretty big undertaking, but we're seeing this demand there from, um, from industry for bulk renewables as, as they seek to decarbonize their operations. and and um, you know, move, move, play their role in the energy transition. In terms of why um, Fortescue is, is talking to us instead of um, Squadron, um, look, I, I probably can't answer that. That would just be speculating, but I, I guess that the site is really compelling um, because it's it's fully permitted. So it means electrons can flow in 2027 and an FID can be taken next year. And the, the loss factors are really good. And you know, by being such such a large scale and, and and in such a good location, we're able to really deliver bulk, um, but, you know, a really a really scalable project, really cheap grid connection, which means that the um, it, it's a compelling cost for them, but also provides compelling returns for us. I'll, I'll hand back to Giles. I'll just but I'll make an observation or pass on an observation that someone a, a smart chap I talked to uh, made to me, and that is that. Uh, in fact, midday prices are probably going to stay low for a while because uh, as many batteries have been developed, the amount of solar coming on is still going to exceed the storage capacity being built, and that will keep downward pressure on midday on lunchtime prices. But that's an observation. Uh, back to you, I'll just make a comment there, David, if you don't mind. Look, I guess, the, and we, we're, we're conscious of this, right? We have an operating solar farm in Queensland already. We've got a merchant solar farm in New South Wales, and we're starting to see a bit of that volatility around the springtime in New South Wales as well, um, directly in our revenues. Um, I guess the way we think about Bully Creek is that it, it's it's not just so much just putting more solar electrons into the network and no other changes um, on the other side. It's really being, with Fortescue, it's being matched with load. So these are going to be absorbed, these electrons are going to be absorbed, um, you know, directly by the, the project. And that's, yeah, so matching the the, the new, new build capacity with load is, is going to help you know, offset that that impact, and I guess the other offtaker that we're, we're contemplating is a similar story. It's it's about decarbonisation of you know withdrawal of, of thermal capacity from the market. So, I take your point that um, you know there is this intraday volatility, particularly in Queensland, makes a great business case for batteries, and it is driven by solar. Uh, but we see- no, I, I take I take your point as well that uh, you know if there's a low price 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 is its own answer is there's a low price load or something will will eventually take advantage of that over to you giles 
Yeah, Craig, look, I'm just sort of like, like to circle right back now to um, battery storage, back to the Baldicum, um, um facility. I mean, you talked about um, revenue sharing and um, Tesla sort of operating that through their auto bidder system. Do you have any sort of forecast about what sort of revenue or earnings that you might be getting from this facility? Will it, um, will it be about the same or more from what you're getting from your two 50 megawatt solar farms, for instance? Yeah, it's obviously a tricky one, right? Forecasting merchant battery revenues, um, because as we know, they're, they're all uh, they, you know they're very lumpy, and and we can earn, yeah, we could earn a year's rep worth of revenue in the first quarter next year. So there must be a few some scribbled on a piece of paper somewhere. <laughs> well, when we closed the project, we we put some numbers out there of, of what we sort of modelled, you know, call it a feasibility study type type scenario, and what we we said was around fifteen million dollars was what we we're expecting from the project based on modeling we've done with a consultant, um, you know, one of the usual suspects. Um, but I guess the way we look at that is that's really a system normal type forecast. And the opportunity here is immense in, in the event that there are, you know, um, events that, that trigger you know, pricing, um, pr pricing events and, and, you know, things like heat waves, like transmission outages, like coal plant outages, you know, another catalyte, for example, um, all those things have the potential to, to really provide significant upside. And, you know, we, we see, see it twofold, you know, it's, it's, it's great that the battery can play a part in, in keeping the lights on, but also, um, you know, it, it, it should be pretty profitable if we are going to see those events and particularly coming into this El Nino summer where, you know, it's, it's good timing to be bringing this online. Yeah. Well, no, no, exactly. I was, I was going to raise that. So that 15 million is revenue, um, annual revenues then just, just to quickly clarify that figure. Yeah, that, that's what yeah. we, we forecast at Financial yeah. Close. Okay. And then you talked about the El Nino summer. So, I mean, look, I don't really know how it operates in, in, inside the electricity markets. I mean, do you have a email and other people on the phone saying it's going to be a tough one, um, please be ready or, or, or something like that? Or you just sort of wait and see what happens and uh, um, and just observe that there are going to be stresses on the grid because there are going to be days and periods of days where it's going to get very hot and um, some things, particularly aging coal-fired power stations, will likely fall over. Yeah, I haven't had direct conversations with AMO, but we have had conversations with um, with certain you know, people in the industry, and and they have expressed um, certainly after the fire that they're keen to see this getting back online, and it's being relied upon this summer as part of the generation mix in Queensland. Um, but you know, you, you, everywhere you look, you, you see um, in the press and and, and elsewhere, uh, you know, forecasts of, of significant stress on the network over the summer, and 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 concerns you know around the traps as to. Yeah. to um, you know how it's going to cope so it, it's just good to be able to you know play a part in, in, um, in contributing to, to network security. Okay, I've got one more question because we've actually got a bit of a queue at the studio today um, with our Solar Insiders podcast that's about to be recorded. So just one fun, you had a bit of corporate activity um, last year and earlier this year, I can't quite remember when it ended now. Scott Farquhar, co-founder of Atlassian, um, shareholder around about 20%, made a bid, didn't happen. Um, what's the latest on that, can you tell us? Uh, yeah, well, I mean that that that's right. There was an approach to to take GenX private uh, in July of last year, and and we were engaged in a period of due diligence with a consortium of Skip Capital and and Stone Peak, which is a, a large um, infrastructure investor. Uh, we announced it around Christmas time that that they were not proceeding with a, a binding offer, and that the discussions with them had concluded. Um, in, in, in launching the offer, Skip took its shareholding from 11%. You know, they've been a holder of GenX for a couple of years now. Um, took mm. their holding from 11% to 19.99%. To and they remain there uh, to this day. And, and they remain a supportive shareholder and supportive of the strategy. And, and, and obviously, we have regular engagement with them as a shareholder now. Now, what, what 
happens in the future would, would just be speculation for me. But, um, you know, we are the last remaining um, renewable energy and, and an only storage company on the ASX. And um, I'm and, surprised Aussie Super hasn't been on the line. Sorry. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah. Look, you know how long how long that remains the case um, is 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 anyone's guess. But, but obviously, there's lots of lots of demand, um, you know, for for portfolios and platforms in this sector. So um, yeah, we're ready to respond to approaches. So is that, a, is that a comfortable place to be then? A listed a listed company? Of, I mean, you're you're quite unique. I mean, um, it, that could be good, but it could be um, challenging. Uh, Look, we are where we are, right? Um, <laughs> we're getting, our, we're getting building our, um, our, our portfolio and our business and, and, and executing our strategy. So, yeah, that's all we can do. And, and if there are approaches to for, for a proposal for Gen X, you know, we'll consider them in the best interest of our shareholders. Um, yeah, Craig, Craig we're, we're running out of time, but uh, I think you, I just wanted to observe that you guys have, have bought well, uh, and that's always a good sign for everyone. I mean, Bulleye Creek from the sound, it sounds like a great site to have. And, um, you know, all your, you've been able to acquire sites probably better than people like Origin or AGL. So well done on that score. Thanks. Thanks very much, Dave. Appreciate it. Yeah, well, look, I'd love to talk some more. Um, but look, uh, we have run out of time. Um, and usually we have we do have a queue at the studio. So we better get going. Look, Craig Francis, um, CEO of GenX Power. Um, once again, congratulations on your appointment. Congratulations on getting the big battery up and running. And congratulations on your other work. And thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So you've been listening to Craig Francis, the CEO of GenX Power. Uh, my name's Charles Parkinson, uh, David Leach from ITK. David, we're not going to get a chance to shoot the breeze on the other stuff of the week this week, but um, enjoy yourself out at West Wyalong. Um, have a look at the solar farm. And um, we'll be back again again next week with another episode of Energy Insiders. And before I go, I'd just like to thank our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And please do give us your feedback. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.